they finally are taking seriously that Google has said, yeah, this really is going to happen early next year. We're finally getting rid of it. I mean, it came through loud and clear in the survey that we did. Third-party data is at the bottom of the list. First-party data audience segmentation are at the top of the list. That makes perfect sense, and it's a clear signal that publishers have shifted their priorities. That's Michael Silberman, Executive Vice President of Media Strategy at Piano, our sponsor on this episode of the Digiday Podcast. Later in the show, Custom talks with Michael about how publishers are adjusting data management practices and working toward diversifying their revenue streams. Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. And since Tim is out on some well-deserved PTO this week, the interview is with Wesley Bonner, who is the SVP of Social and Audience Development at BDG, which publishes titles like Bustle, W, Inverse, Romper, and many others. I wanted to have Wesley on the podcast because... There has been so much going on in the world of social media platforms, and I figured, given the fact that social is such a crucial part of uh, BDG's audience strategy, and you and I have talked about this quite a bit in the past, you'd be a very good voice to kind of touch on a lot of these different changes, a lot of what's going on, and get the publisher's perspective on how some of these you know, new platforms or changes within legacy platforms at this point impact a publisher's audience strategy at the end of the day. So, Wesley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much uh, for joining me. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I guess we'll maybe start out with what the biggest recent news has been, which is threads uh, coming on to the scene. Um, I read this from uh, my colleague Sarah Guaglione's uh, story back in March. She had spoken with you about social traffic. And I think the stat that she had written in there was BDG's uh, followers on Facebook and Instagram represent about 60% of the company's total social following. Um, Wanted to ask if that's still a correct stat, if it's about right. And given the fact that Meta is a very, you know, significant, uh, I guess, like contributor of of followers on, for your, your followership, what kind of the threads platform means in your eyes, given the fact that so much of your following is already in that meta ecosystem? Yeah, that's a great first question. So from a, from a follower standpoint, that's still very accurate. Um, so to date, we um, are about at 800, almost 900,000 followers on threads. And so, you know, it was obviously a very unique a way to launch an app where we were kind of migrating our Instagram followers over to our threads followers. And that's still happening like every day as new users are saying, Hey, maybe I do want to try threads. I'm going to, you know, go over. And then that instant follow happens for our brands, which is makes our job a lot easier from an acquisition standpoint. Um, it kind of takes away that immediate pressure of um, gauging performance on the platform just off of our people following us. So we, given that across our whole portfolio, we have now um, 110 million followers across all social media accounts. That 1 million is, you know, a small percentage of, of the pie. But I will say from our point of view, and, and really what I'm seeing with a lot of brands, not just media brands, but um 
people who are operating Threads accounts as a brand is it's given us some flexibility to be much more playful than we would probably have been if we had started an account with zero followers and we were trying to really gamify the algorithm and try and say, okay, our number one goal is to build an audience. The audience came to us directly from Instagram. So we got to kind of eliminate that pressure immediately and say, okay, we don't have to worry necessarily about the follower count, but what are we going to do to differentiate this from other platforms in the way that we speak to our audiences on Twitter slash X um, or Pinterest or TikTok or Facebook or Instagram, et cetera. So because there's no real um, goal at the moment, we've kind of made our goal with threads to build as large a vocal community as possible. So a lot of what we, the honest that we put on ourselves from a KPI is just saying, how can we get users to engage and not just press the like button, which obviously eventually will be important as they continue to roll out like traditional analytics um, in threads. But we want people to comment in the thread. That's the whole point. Um, and so a lot of what you'll see from our brands are prompts. So questions or conversation starters, we've, we've even gone as far to say, hey, we're writing an article and we want to hear from you. How do you, you know, think you mentioned Romper earlier, Scary Mommy, you know, maybe it's a parenting prompt. How, what is, what's your parenting style? Or you have this scenario with your kid, what do you do? And that has been very successful and been fun to watch. And we're seeing our users are just more comfortable typing in a response from themselves on threads because it doesn't really surface in other places. So for example, if you, you know, you as a user may not be comfortable commenting on a post on Instagram because you know, your, your friends or your family or, or someone might see or be served your comment. They're probably not going to see your thread unless they follow the same exact brands that you do. So it's, it, and that's kind of what we saw when TikTok was for new too. We were seeing people were very comfortable commenting on TikTok that they weren't comfortable commenting on Instagram. And it was kind of like a safety thing for them and made them more comfortable picking up the keyboard and, and engaging. So we're just trying to lean into that as kind of our, our personal KPI on the platform. Yeah, no, that's such an interesting um, kind of concept because, you know, I you had just spoken with, uh, again, my colleague Sarah Guaglioni about um, Threads as a lifestyle and entertainment publisher. She did this um, great story that kind of looked at how uh, the different content content types and like strategies that lifestyle and entertainment publishers were um you know, approaching with threads. Everyone should take a look at that story. Went up last week uh, when this episode airs. But um, within that, like, it, it was very interesting because you were talking about engagement. You're, I think you had used an example around, you know, romper and asking what people are wearing to Taylor Swift, um, and you know, people responding to that. And it's such an interesting concept because you're absolutely right. Like when TikTok launched, it was such a raw and real platform that was so completely different from Instagram, and it's, uh. Yeah, it is kind of this like unique 
maybe well not unique because you know TikTok did this right, <laughs> but it is this like different approach than what uh, I think Meta platforms have historically done. Maybe that's not the case so much with Facebook. I think people can be extremely transparent on Facebook, but it is like yeah, a little maybe, bit more of a, a little too maybe too too uh, willing to comment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you're right. I think like with Threads so far because there isn't that. Um, personal social element to it nearly as much it is a different kind of vibe yeah and we've tried to keep it very like i said light and playful we're not going on to threads from the bustle handle and getting into politics or to you know uh, local news it's very much these cultural conversations that have like a relatability standpoint or a or a humorous standpoint, the romper example, like the eras, actually, I'm going to steal that because it's a really good idea. We were asking, uh, we were talking in the article about text only posts on threads or our image posts on threads, because you could argue when you're posting an image on threads, why not use Instagram for that and keep threads text only. But in the same way where um, you're familiar with seeing the meme layout, which is essentially a screenshot of a tweet. It, it's funny because it's like all this ecosystem, right? So you have this viral tweet, which is usually like some funny text with a corresponding image. You screenshot that whole experience, move it over to Instagram. Th- those go viral and get shared a lot because you kind of get this joke, right? Or this, this whether it's relatable or nostalgic or funny. Um, and so we're seeing the same thing in threads where text only posts, not saying they don't do well because they definitely, we've definitely had viral moments there. But in the romper example, we had asked parents to share what their kids were wearing to the Barbie movie. Right. Okay. Barbie, Taylor Swift. I personally uh, wore pink to both. So that's why I got confused. I, um, yes, Barbie is in the lover era for sure. Um, but when we posted that original prompt, it, it kind of fell flat. And I think either maybe it just, you know, people are scrolling and, and when you see so many text only posts in a row, it's kind of mind numbing. And so we kind of followed up in that, with that thread with um, an article about, with images of families going to see Barbie. And so having that giant Barbie photo, Margot Robbie as Barbie, that stopped everyone's attention. Then they could read the prompt. And then we started to see the replies come in in the thread of people sharing their photos. So it's definitely early days of figuring out those strategies with kind of limited analytics, seeing what pops off from all. And that's the beauty of having so many brands in the umbrella is something that maybe pops off a romper. We can this is a perfect example. If we have this Barbie scenario and romper, now we have this Taylor Swift example, and maybe we want to do that on Bustle or Elite Daily or Nylon. And, you know, it's being able to apply those learnings back and forth is helpful when you're kind of guessing in the dark of something that's brand new. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I'm pretty sure we have talked about this um, in the past, and I've definitely talked to other publishers about this. It's like, especially when you're looking at short form vertical video uh, platforms, there is this kind of taking something that worked well on like TikTok, putting that on Instagram and, you know, changing a few things and that might work. It might not. It really depends. But curious, like, you know, if we're looking at these kind of text-based 
social media platforms like Twitter and threads and, you know, some of the other ones like I don't know if BDG has shown up at all on like Blue Sky or Mastodon, but some of these other like competitors in the space, like, is it a similar strategy that works kind of when you're looking at X, Twitter, whatever, um, like how you kind of approach that for the past 10 plus years versus, you know, how you're kind of approaching threads or does it feel like a different audience? Because a lot of them do come from Instagram. So I think for us, we have a jumping off point in each of our brand's identities. So at the end of the day, all of our brands are rooted in in an editorial strategy. So we know you can name any of our brands, Inverse, Bustle, et cetera. I can tell you the top celebrities that those audiences are interested in, the top TV shows that those audiences watch, the top movies that they're going to be looking forward to coming out, the, the type of fashion that resonates with that particular audience based off of the demo and also just the editorial vision and strategy. So the first step is just translating that onto the platform. We're not going to have Nylon, who is definitely, you know, is covering indie music and up and coming artists and uh, up and coming fashion labels. They're not then going to go on threads and talk about, skydiving or you know whatever Mm -hmm. so that's the first part is like we don't have to chase a content strategy that's kind of usually set in stone so then it's taking the the content strategy and translating it to the platform so a lot of times there is a through line with what you see from our brands on each platform you won't see the exact same piece of content but we can take a photo shoot and Let's Bustle's most recent cover, for example, with Jessica Simpson, you'll see, you know, our probably our biggest strategy of this year is really honing in on original content because, you know, there's all the conversations around AI and where is that going to come and, and speaking for brands are writing content for websites, et cetera. And so we're really doubling down on creating original content that can't be replicated by AI. And so taking the Jessica Simpson, just as an example, we come away with, you know, a day with her with hundreds of images, minutes to hours of video footage. Um, we have a writer on staff who's, who's creating all this, um, you know, who's interviewing her and getting all these sound bites and these press hits and all of that. And so you'll see that stretched into as many places as possible. And so we kind of translate that to maybe just traditional content too. If we're reviewing a TV show and writing recaps, it's like, okay, what's the video version of that? What's the text-based version of that? What's the image version of that, et cetera? And then it slots itself into the platform based off of what's going to you know, do the best there. Got it. So like Twitter text-based or like photos that get shared there. It's not like a copy-paste onto threads at this point. Right. I think it could be. I definitely will say that. There could be a moment where like, let's say you get Jessica Simpson to say something amazing. You have this amazing one sentence quote from Jessica Simpson. That would probably do well as tweet and it would probably do well as a thread. Um, But 
like I said, if we're going back to the very first thing I said, where our kind of KPI on threads would be to get people to engage in that conversation, it would probably be like a prompt. We would probably hit like a nostalgia angle with Jessica Simpson and say, like, tell us your favorite Jessica Simpson bot from the 2000s or what was your favorite Jessica Simpson's video. So just thinking about it, like repackaging it slightly to give the user some reason to engage in the comments and, and the it. threads. Yeah. 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 And um, it, that r- reminded me of something I had talked about. Um, I had spoken with some news publishers about their approach to threads. And one of the things that was mentioned was how the dark side of Twitter has gotten extremely dark. And so from like an engagement standpoint, and granted, this is them, you know, this is the, I think the Washington Post said this, talking about like political, you know, stuff and, and trolls and, you know, a lot of just negative kind of engagement on posts on that platform. How is like, how do prompts work on Twitter if you're still, you know, going about trying to create that level of engagement? Or is there a different kind of KPI for Twitter X? I'm honest to God, not really sure how to address them anymore. It's going to take some months to to break that habit. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> is there like a similar like engagement tactic there? Or I mean, is Twitter even like a, a platform that you're, you know, actively on at this point? We are active on the platform. And... Historically, for Twitter, we had been writing multiple KPIs there. We kind of saw Twitter for most of our brands more as a potential traffic driver to the site than as a ecosystem of like community and conversation. I think because we have a lot of legacy audiences there. Some of our brands would have some viral success on Twitter. Usually they were image-based posts. So from photo shoots or or content that was exclusive featuring celebrities, more newsy than like a fashion roundup or, you know, beauty a, a shoppable beauty story. That typically falls flat on the Twitter platform. And so what's been promising about threads in a direct comparison is... Most of our brands still have a larger following on Twitter, but the algorithm is so new. And in this learning phase, we're getting surfaced to so many more people than our tweets are getting surfaced to more people. And you bring up an interesting point about like dark Twitter. Um, I will say one of our favorite features of Twitter was being able to create moments and our brands and a lot of our competitors, you know, friends in, in media publishing, we kind of all were in moments together and it was kind of fun. There was like a slight bit of competition, but really it was like room for everyone. I don't know if you remember Twitter moments. It's because it's now, you know, basically I think it ended in November-ish of 2022. But you would kind of go to the trending tab and you could kind of see these curated moments of what was happening that day. So, for example, we had a Twitter moment. Um, Nylon broke the news that Rihanna was going to be the Super Bowl performer. And so we created a moment with all of our content and it featured content from Bustle and Elite Daily. But we were also able to thread in, you know, content from Rolling Stone or People. And so it was a lot of this like camaraderie amongst publishers because we can only create so much content about Rihanna hosting the Super Bowl. And so we were kind of serving all that a user who was interested in that topic could find on Twitter. And we got 
amazing traffic from those moments. And they all had to be approved. It wasn't anything that we were gaming the system. We were basically creating the moments, submitting them to Twitter. They would get featured, and then we would kind of reap the benefits. But I felt that because we the numbers proved that the users were really, really into that into moments. Millions yeah. and millions and millions of views every time we would get one featured, like, in the top ten. And they just removed them, you know, took them away. And so that was another kind of hit for us as a publisher because we were that was a way for us to control the narrative a little bit and and insert ourselves into the cultural conversation and now we're still creating the exact same tweets but we're at the mercy of the algorithm which in some cases we know isn't rewarding us unfortunately right yeah no I I you're not the only publisher to have said that about moments and I think in general like Twitter has kind of at least from the conversations I've had, just really even fallen off as like a traffic referral source too. Like it's not even like kind of generating anything from that end. I mean, it's still a place that you need to kind of be at, you know, if audience is there. But yeah, that's definitely what I've heard too. Um, like have there been any other, I think I mentioned like Blue Sky and Mastodon as like two other kind of like text-based platforms. Are any of the other kind of like, you know, quote unquote, Twitter competitors, have they been, you know, considered by your team at all? Are you on any of these platforms or or not? We're not right? active at the moment on any of them. Pretty much any time something gets a rumble, we will quickly like acquire our handles and things like that, which we did for, for both of those. But we we honestly don't have the resources and I I know that I'm echoing every single publisher in the industry at the moment. This is not a BDG thing. It's just it's just a prioritization. And we it unfortunately like experimenting on a brand new platform, especially when we're like I was saying earlier, where you're starting from zero followers, zero algorithm um learnings, it's like a daunting task. So we kind of wait it out to see how culture is going to respond. And then we can kind of jump in. We definitely don't want to be late. We definitely don't want to be the last at the party, but we also can't afford to be first in a way. So that's kind of where our thought process is. And a lot of times we are are fortunate to have like a lot of very savvy younger people on our social team who are very in the know and kind of like have a good um, pulse on like what G is what Gen Z is really interested in and what and where they're putting their attention. And so we kind of divide and conquer that way of like, hey, have you heard of this? I'm on, I'm going to I'm going to play around on it for a couple of weeks and see what I see and things like that. So that's how we kind of prioritize something that's brand new. Fair enough, especially like I know with threads, like being a mobile only platform at this point, that is kind of cumbersome because you can't even really use it like a, you know, other platform to create threads and post them. It's like you have yeah, to kind of be no on schedule it yourself. Or, yeah, no API. That's tough. But I will say feedback from my team because I'm always, I'm a hesitant manager to blindly add more to my team's plate. I'm very protective of my team's bandwidth and time and work-life balance. And I hope that they would all agree with that. But with threads, it, it did kind of feel like a breath of fresh air and giving them a little bit more freedom to play. 
And I kind of, we kind of said that on day one, you know, it's not going to be a place where we just blindly link posts from our site or where we just copy and paste from Twitter. You know, there is a little bit of thoughtfulness and strategy, but it should be fun. And so you'll see a lot of our um, brand handles on threads. We talk in first person. So even though you're seeing a thread from, I was going to say tweet, but you're seeing a thread from the Bustle account, it'll very much be like, haven't stopped listening to Taylor Swift today or something like that. It's And that's something we've seen work well on other platforms too. And I think our audiences start to know our brands as people. And that very much translates in engagement when, when an audience is like, yeah, me too, versus, hey, you're trying to sell me something or you're trying to trick me into an action, like a click or a view. It's more just we're all in this together. We're, we're all scrolling through this platform mindlessly together. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back. I'm Christina Ko, Senior Editor at Custom, Digiday Media's in-house agency. In this podcast, In Our Social Story, sponsored by Piano, we speak with Michael Silberman, the company's Executive Vice President of Media Strategy, about how publishers are adjusting data management practices and working toward diversifying their revenue streams. The biggest change that we've seen in the past year or so is much, much more focus uh, than in prior years on actively collecting first-party and zero-party data. We started talking about this I don't know, back in 2020 when Google first made the announcement that they were deprecating third-party cookies in Chrome. We'd already seen the impact of that in Safari and in Firefox. And our message to our clients was, you need to start thinking about this and you need to actively begin to collect this kind of data um, because it will take you a while, you know, fast forward three years, and I think we're in a very different place. The awareness is certainly right at the top. Everybody knows that this is a tactic that they need to pursue. But the key difference is that now they're actually starting to take action um, and are much more focused on gathering first-party data through instrumenting their website, through you know using a DMP or a CDP. As publishers take action to build out strong first-party data sets, they're also thinking about audience segmentation and how that affects their business strategies and offerings. Here, Silberman highlights some of the results from Piano's recent State of the Industry report with Digiday. They finally are taking seriously that Google has said, yeah, this really is going to happen early next year. We're finally getting rid of it. I mean, it came through loud and clear in the survey that we did. Third-party data is at the bottom of the list. First-party data audience segmentation are at the top of the list. That makes perfect sense, and it's a clear signal that publishers have shifted their priorities. Their understanding that they need to use that data in order to drive their audience segmentation tactics, beginning to think about, all right, what slices of audience are most important for our subscription business? What slices of audience are most important for our ad business? What's the conversation that we need to have with our advertisers and our agencies about the kind of segments that they want to target in their ad campaigns? And how can we acquire that data as opposed to, say, just buying third-party data segments? 
Publishers are realizing that as they work to ensure the data they're acquiring is of high quality, they also need to establish a solid team structure to execute these data management strategies. Publishers that are thinking about this most clearly understand that they need to have a dedicated data management function within the company, and they are acting on that and building that team and saying, okay, this team needs to execute our strategy, sort of understand all our data sources, aggregate it, those data sources across those different channels, pull it all into one database, and then that team needs to be responsible for measuring results, understanding progress, understanding impact, potentially also adopting specific tools to be able to measure the value of those segments. Where are the segments that are most valuable for us to be able to um, try and go get more of that data or go find more of those kinds of users other places on the internet and bring them back to our website? All of those tactics can lead to better measurement and clearer understanding of the results that you're getting out of that data management strategy. You've been listening to Michael Silberman, Executive Vice President of Media Strategy at Piano, our sponsor on this episode. And now back to the Digiday Podcast. I want to talk a little bit about kind of what you were talking about with like original content and creating more like assets for social and and just really investing in more of that like a, you know, premium, non, you know, AI generated or even just kind of like a, a huge social strategy that I see all the time is just kind of like the same memes showing up in, you know, a, a variety of different ways, right? So your investment into original content, like what has that shift looked like and what does that really mean from like an investment standpoint? Is it, you know, hiring more, you know, arts department people? Is it like showing up more to these shoots? Like what's the what does the strategy really look like? Yes. So it's been a it's been a very big shift in strategy for us corporate-wide, like company-wide. So if we were having this conversation three or four years ago, our stake in the ground has always been scale. So, you know, just writing as much content as possible and getting as many eyeballs on that content as possible. And social played a big part of that. You know, we're a huge driver of getting people to go from one platform onto one of our dot coms. Now, not saying that we've abandoned our traffic strategy, but really we'd rather have these very qualified readers come back over time throughout the month because they're interested in consuming the content that we're making. I always use this example um, from like maybe 2018. We had this article on Romper that was like, when is Gracie, Grace and Frankie coming back? And that article would get like millions of page views a month, like millions, millions and millions. And it was because everyone was Googling, when will Grace and Frankie come back? And we were getting all of like, we were reaping the benefits of that traffic, which is great and a fantastic SEO strategy. And I'm not saying I don't want those people to Google that and come to one of our sites. But those people weren't loyal readers to us. They didn't know the brand. They just wanted to get that date and time quickly and they were out. And so we really wanted to create 
more of an environment where we have kind of these loyal readers who want to come to us as a destination for great content that they can't get anywhere else. And so to answer your question, yes, that was a shift in um, our creative team, making sure we have the right photographers, editors, designers, project managers, um, talent teams. Um, and I would say probably like one of our shining, another shining star in our company is our fashion team. Um, we really built that from the ground up under Tiffany Reed, who's our head of fashion. So really, you know, taking brands that maybe weren't synonymous with fashion in the fashion industry and now becoming like a major player in that world, knowing that we're going to have some of the coolest, what most well-designed shoots with the best fashion and the best people. And so then that trickles down to my team where we've changed just the output that we get from those shoots. So a year ago, you know, we, we have an hour or two hours or a half a day or a day with a celebrity. It's like, okay, let's get the interview. Let's get the photo shoot. And now it's, you know, like I said, it's going from five pieces of content that we come out of that shoot with to 20 pieces of content that we come out of that shoot with. And giving our audience these kind of snippets and tidbits and we're asking really fun questions. And I feel like talent are now trusting us so much more because they see, you know, I think our, our most viewed video of last year was this clip when we had Hillary Duff on the cover of Romper, um, or Bustle, excuse me. We asked her if she could remember the, a line from the Lizzie McGuire movie. So we played the clip for her. And so it's just that perfect storm of like nostalgic and funny and humorous and relatable. And we're, and we're kind of in this cool moment right now where it, it's the train has left the station and we're kind of like seeing all the benefits and, and it's, it's an exciting time, I think, to be at BDG. Yeah. And I think you know, looking at short form vertical video as like a you know, specific yeah. type of asset, right? Like it sounds like a lot of this kind of investment into original content, not just for BDG, but like literally any publisher who wants to be acting on TikTok. Like it has to be, you know, very original, very unique because there's really, I mean, unless you're like one of those accounts that just like reposts like movies and like two minute exactly. snippets yeah. over and over. I was, like, I was inspired this week. Um, from Vanity Fair and they had the cast of Barbie in studio. They were in, you know, probably in their office and they had each one member of the cast rotate as to be like the driver of the interview and the rest of the cast would answer the questions. They'd play mm -hmm. a game and then yeah. they'd swap. So now Margot Robbie's in the chair, the rest of the cast, then Issa Rae's in the chair, just thinking they probably had two hours with the cast, maybe less. And they, and they probably got 30 or 40 videos out of that from, and, and they're all great because they're all these quick little, I, I ask a question, the cast answers, and they can slice each of, the, each of those questions into um, its own video. And that's exactly how we're thinking about it too. Um, versus like uh, in previous years, we may have made like a four minute long video from YouTube. Now that's 10 two minute videos, you know? Mm -hmm. So the Vanity Fair shoot that you mentioned, yes, I did see that. And 
it was very entertaining. And also I never thought about what that means from like a social team standpoint, like from that operational standpoint. So like, what does it look like when you're on set or when your team is on set for one of these shoots? And like, has it meant that you'd needed to like bring more people on or is it just like a different strategy? Like what's the, yeah. What, what does the operational side of it look like? It hasn't necessarily translated into just more bodies, but it's just that thoughtfulness of, for lack of a better expression, like biggest bang for your buck. If we're going to have this person for this amount of time, how can we stretch this time into as many assets as possible? So, you know, one strategy, which you'll see from most publishers is franchises. So, you know, having Bustle has a series called Go-Tos and it's kind of just something we can pull out of the bag at any time. It's something that the talent is very comfortable with. Not some, we're, not, we're not trying to get them to say something wrong. We don't want them to insult someone. And then we've got this sound bite. It's not like that. It's more just behind the scenes questions that hopefully people aren't asking. So, you know, their go-to cocktail, their go-to fast fashion store, their go-to fast food. Like that's a, you know, very just simple example, but it does take a lot of planning. So that's something that has changed, you know, saying um, you really need to know how you're going to maximize your time, especially when they're getting hair and makeup done, they're getting styled. Um, The video, you know, we might have um, videographers who are setting up, boom, you know, sound is setting up. So, you know, logistically, there it's a number of people. Um, But the same goes for um, like red carpet coverage, right? So that's been a big success for us in the post-COVID world, because I think so many audiences, people who are interested in celebrities and entertainment, missed that for a very long time. And you get so many great little sound bites because the talent is very on. They're going down the line. They know they're going to get asked these questions. They haven't prepped for anything. You know, when we when we shoot them in studio, they want to see the questions in advance. What are you going to do with us? What's the what's the goal? What's the series or you know can we approve the questions but getting someone on a red carpet or at a show premiere we've had some of our best video content coming out of being like at the Emily in Paris premiere or at the Barbie premiere and so that's another piece of the puzzle it's that taking you know we'll be at the VMAs coming up in a month and so getting as much content out of that as possible has also been really helpful And we have the benefit of kind of working linearly across multiple brands. So if we only get approved to send one person to a red carpet, that person isn't like, well, sorry, I work for Nylon. And, you know, that just means Nylon's going to get video. We're we're slicing and dicing that content up for every brand that it's applicable for in the umbrella as as it relates to social. Got it. Yeah, that was my other question. Like if it is a, you know, brand by brand operation? Because, I mean, you mentioned earlier in this episode that you can tell, like, you know, any of the brands, like, who their audience is like from, like, a celebrity standpoint or what movie premieres they want to see. Like, it sounds like you kind of have a very deep understanding of each of the brands. And so for your team, it kind of operates the same way. Is it, like, organized by platform or is it organized more by, I don't know, like, 
category or, or like how do you assign people to, you know, That's posting? That's such a good question. Um, so we do organize the team by brand and we've tried it many different ways. We've had people on our team in years past who only work on Facebook and they're, they just have a deep understanding of getting users to click their traffic driving function. And they can do that for multiple brands at the same time. They don't need necessarily a deep understanding of brand voice because they're just sharing what the editorial team has been making for the site anyway. And that works. But I think what we found in just the output from the team and the work that comes out of the team, if they can really have ownership over a brand identity, they can translate that into multiple platforms. Now, the same person who maybe is creating Instagram content or posting link content to Facebook for the Zoe Report, for example, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're making every video that you see on the Zoe Report's TikTok, and that doesn't mean they're on every single photo shoot or at every red carpet, but they are the point person and the primary owner of all social for that brand. So there's someone who is leading the charge. But then we do have a lot of um, support roles, a lot of junior support. So we've had been fortunate, we have an incredible internship program at BDG and a lot of our interns have stayed on into these kind of support roles and they will be the ones who are kind of touching multiple brands in very specific functions. So maybe editing videos or maybe creating Instagram story series because they're templatized and what they're doing is kind of just build building layouts. So, and then they work with the manager of that brand to under like pick the content that they're going to transfer into Instagram stories and make sure that everything looks good. And so that's been a really great way we've organized it for support. We do have um, a network of creators who make videos for us. So we have about um, 50 uh, part-time creators who specifically make video content that helps us keep up with the scale that we need for video as it relates to non-original celebrity. So, um, creator, food creator videos, fashion creator videos, beauty tutorials that allows us to keep our TikToks really fresh and, and filled with content. Um, but it is kind of, we do so all support each other. So, you know, for example, we may get one slot on the Oscars red carpet and, that's in LA. And so someone from our editorial team may go and stand on the red carpet with three microphones and ask questions because we know they're equipped to do it and they may not even be on the social team. And then we get, and then our social team is on standby in New York, just editing those videos and getting them up in real time. So we can kind of hit the, the moment. So it's a, a, a village. Yeah. A collective effort for sure. Yeah. And so all right, not including the part-time network of 50 creators, how big is the social team that you oversee? Um, so it is around 15 full-time employees um, who work solely on editorial organic social. Got it. And with the creator network, because I think that has been a growing area um, or, or trend within like you know, a variety of publishers, social strategies. Like, why does that work? You mentioned, like, it helps you keep up with the scale for, like, or the demand for some of these, you know, vertical video platforms. Like, why did the creator network make sense 
for you as like a strategy. I imagine there is still that original, you know, content play there, but you know, what about a creator network is the best business model for approaching these platforms? It started for us as just an affordable, a more affordable video output strategy. So our in-house video team, you know, they're producing, you know, best in class docu-series and auto commercials. And just for our partners, you know, these very high quality videos. And we needed something that was a little bit more platform native and knowing that we're not going to have millions of dollars in video production budget. And another reason that we even started on the platform in, in, on TikTok in 2020 was that so many of our advertisers were coming to us and saying, hey, we aren't on TikTok. We don't really understand it. Can you help us? And after like the fifth or sixth time someone asked us that, you know, I get all the, those social questions from our sales team. Our CEO, Brian, and I were like, wait a minute, we, there's an opportunity here because if, if, if advertisers typically go to publishers for support, for content creation, for brand alignment, and they don't know anything about TikTok, why, we want to be the one who is able to answer those questions. And so that's how we kind of spun up on the platform very quickly. And, and I think within the first year, we had 14 or 15 million followers on TikTok, and now it's over 20. So we definitely were in the right place at the right time at the beginning. And so when we were thinking about how are we keeping all of these pages populated with video without hiring all, you know, all these full-time people, that's where it led us to creators and creators were, you know, they were a huge part of, of launching the channels too, because, you know, if they can build up a audience for themselves and they are good at editing video quickly, they understand the platform, they understand turning topics and sounds, they're the perfect people to kind of produce video content at scale for, for a brand. And so now it's kind it's, it's much more sophisticated than it was in 2020. We kind of we have creators in various content lanes, like I mentioned earlier, and it does fluctuate over time because the algorithm is constantly changing. So food was like a huge area for us last year, and it's not something that you would really align one of our brands specifically with food. Mm-hmm. We don't have a you know a Domino or a, um, Bon Appetit you know brand in the portfolio. But yet Bustle had, you know, we've launched three or four franchise series on TikTok specifically around food, and we would not be able to populate those on on a weekly basis without those creators. I will say that also directly translates to advertising dollars specifically for TikTok, because we are now able to go to a CPG brand or a restaurant chain and show them, hey, our audience loves these food franchises, Bustle Bites and Bustle Eats and Bustle Shakes, which is our cocktail series. And they're able to very easily see like, oh yeah, you're you're there. I can see the examples. I want to sponsor one or I want to sponsor the whole series, et cetera, et cetera. And so we wouldn't really be able to do that. We wouldn't have so many examples to show our advertisers to then translate into branded content programs without those creator videos. Yeah. And is the creator network specifically for TikTok or do their, does their content show up on any other 
you know, platforms like, you know, Snapchat, Instagram, or, you know, Facebook, I guess, like, again, vertical video, who's not playing in that space at this point? Yes, exactly. It is appearing in multiple places. Not every video from the creator network will be in multiple places. So it's all being really commissioned with the idea of TikTok. But if we see something that does really well, or like, for example, we just wanted as much Barbie content as possible. Maybe a creator did like a Barbie makeup tutorial or nail tutorial. That's something that would we know would easily translate over to Instagram or Pinterest even. And like a nail tutorial is perfect for Pinterest. So we are trying to get the biggest bang from our buck, but also trying to still curate and not just have every single page look exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah, got it. And because you mentioned, uh, you know, advertising dollars in the sales team, you know, asking for your input on, uh, you know, what advertisers are asking for, I am curious because, you know, Snapchat just had their earnings this week and their ad revenue was down for the second quarter in the row. And curious, like, is most of the inquiries that you're getting from like a social media standpoint, is it mostly for like TikTok at this point? Is there interest in, you know, other platforms to the same level or, you know, have any advertisers asked for like threads, for example, like curious, like what, you know, is being asked about from like an advertising standpoint? I would say if I had to rank the products in terms of questions from advertisers and just interest, I think Instagram and Instagram reels is at the top. So we're seeing, I think a lot of our advertisers are really comfortable on that platform. They, their brands are on that platform and they see success there. So they, they know that they kind of want, they know what works, what doesn't work. And there's some comfortability. I will say like, we've done really, really well at scaling revenue from TikTok. And I think that that will continue to grow as more advertisers are more comfortable with the platform and understand how the ad products work. And as we continue to learn, you know, how conversions work, what's the shopability, like all the, like they roll out new features constantly as it relates to like ticket sales, add to carts, you know, it's, they're, they're definitely like in a growth phase in terms of ad products. So I think we'll see that translate into like how we, pitch and convert our advertisers onto that platform. Facebook is still an enormous part of our ad strategy. It's definitely still one of the most cost-effective and just in general effective ways at driving traffic. So, you know, we we have a lot of branded content on our sites uh, from our editorial and branded editorial teams. And so, you know, almost all pieces of branded content come with some sort of Facebook execution alongside of it, which helps us drive the traffic that we are, we're selling to them. Um, and Pinterest is having a bit of a moment as well. A lot of resurgence and in interest in Pinterest. I think that interest in Pinterest, um, they are really also in a stride right now of creating new products and new ad products. They have the new idea pin, which you know, as kind of like a tappable story experience. And then that is also translated into vertical video, of course. So we're seeing a lot of success there editorially and are working very closely with Pinterest because uh, they're very eager to have more content like that on the platform. And I think that they know that publishers are a great way to get the output up. 
And so we're kind of making new efforts to reintroduce Pinterest to our advertisers who maybe haven't purchased Pinterest from us in the in the past and show them kind of that the, that audience is unique and a little bit different than the audience that they would reach on Instagram, for example. And then your last question, we, we have gotten questions about threads for sure. And currently there are no ad products. There's no distribution on the platform. There's no branded content tools, et cetera. And so everything is kind of an organic play, which may make sense for a certain advertiser, but probably not something we'll package and productize until next year when we have more, they have so many features to roll out, so many features that are coming and we're working closely with them. They've been very great at giving us kind of updates as things roll out and some timelines and things like that. So we're optimistic that that our goal right now, build an active audience. And then later when that's all stable and in and high engagement and all that, then we can try to convert that into something that we might could sell against. But I like the idea of keeping it organic and editorial and let us just kind of like build up the health without need the pressure of like monetizing it. And I know my team is excited about that too. Um, but I will say one interesting thing that's come out of the Threads launch is our partners have asked us to engage with them on Threads, which has been fun. So we're doing a lot more of that now as of, a lot more of that. We've been on the platform for two weeks, but um, this week I've seen a lot of our brands, a lot of people on my team engage with other other brands. So you see, Spotify is doing a lot of prompts too, like what's your song of summer? What's the you know what song have you streamed the most this summer? And so our brands have been interacting with those kind of other brand prompts. So that's been fun to watch. And the same with our fashion teams, we've been posting some of our photo shoots on Threads and relaying it back to like um, celebrity birthdays or album launches or show releases and tagging the fashion credits uh, with their threads accounts where we, we nor- would normally tag them on Twitter or on Instagram and seeing them like jump into the thread and, and create engagement that way. So we're kind of just keeping it organic and natural, but we are trying to engage with more brand accounts too and, and see what's, what works there. Yeah. Is that like in any way like monetized? Like, is that like part of any campaigns or is that just like purely like priming the kind of, you know, machine for future partnerships there? Exactly. And also these are our partners editorially as well. You know, if we have fashion in our photo shoots, all of that's editorial, that's not a paid partnership. And so it's just more crediting them for the clothes that we've used in the photo shoot, for example. And the Spotify's example, they're a great partner for us on the advertising side. But what we're what you know, what we're engaging with them on threads is separate from that. It's just because it aligns with what we were what we would do and talk about from our brand's perspective anyway. Got it. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. I feel like that flew by. This is so interesting. It was so fast. I know. I feel like we could go another hour. And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode. 